welcome to the Enthusiast Podcast, where I sit down with leading founders, operators, and investors that are trailblazers in their ecosystems, leapfrogging development and creating growth for their economies. We dive into the nitty-gritty of scaling business and investing, showcasing the tremendous success cases beyond Silicon Valley. Hi, this is Pat from The Enthusiast. On this episode, I had the pleasure to sit down with one of fintech's great stars, Pedro Conrade of Brazilian challenger bank Neon. Neon, founded in 2016 when Pedro was in his early 20s, today serves more than 25 million customers and has raised more than 700 million from the likes of PropelVC, General Catalyst, Krona, and Monashis. I have long admired what Pedro and his team have achieved providing better financial services to millions of Brazilians and paving the way towards a more competitive financial landscape. Big shout out to Jonathan Whittle of Quona for making the connection. Along the conversation, we dive into the making of Neon, how the company has scaled, and how the financial ecosystem in the country has evolved since Neon's founding and beyond. We also dive into the five acquisitions the company has performed over the last years and what defines M&A success. It was such a pleasure to have Pedro Conrade, co-founder and CEO of Neon, on the show. Now, without further ado, directly onto the episode. And remember, you can follow The Enthusiast wherever you're getting your podcast and make sure to check out our LinkedIn newsletter to stay up to date with the latest episodes. Hi, Pedro. It is such a pleasure having you on the Enthusiast Podcast today. My pleasure. I'm so glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. What you're building with Neon is just amazing in terms of the financial ecosystem in the country. You started out quite early as an entrepreneur, might say. How did you actually end up in the world of entrepreneurship? So for me, I never had to make, I never had to think about it, to be honest. Some people ask me why you decided to open, to start your own business. And I, I always say that I couldn't see any other alternative. For me, it was clear that I was going to start my own business. My father was an entrepreneur. I like to say he was an old school entrepreneur. He started everything from nothing. I was always looking up to him and say, yeah, I want to be like him. So while I was, I was in university, I decided to uh, start another tech business I had other business before this time was neon a lot of people don't know my first business was a bikini shop at the beach where i used to leave it was it was pretty cool but for me it was never a decision it was very obvious you started neon in your in your early 20s sometimes one says you know like as a founder one has to be kind of have the audacity especially to take on such a big challenge focusing on the on financial services in brazil why did you start neon in the first place this is something different about Neon. Usually, I don't recommend this to people. The chances of you succeeding starting a business with 20 years old, I think it's so low that I rather recommend my friends to work in a company first, learn a few things, and then start. In my case, we started from a customer perspective. It was never from a business plan perspective, a good trying to, to address a, a great market, take a, a share of a big profit pool it was never from this perspective. It was always from a customer perspective. I was very frustrated with the level of servicing of the traditional banks in Brazil. 
and it's at that time that I, I didn't want to be a client of those banks anymore. And at the end, I realized that I had no alternative. What are the five big ban- banks or that's it. So I decided to start something different for people like me at a time that wanted something simpler, cheaper, easier to use, easier to understand that that would help me not make me suffer. And then Neon was born from this willingness to do different and to offer something better for the customers. And we're going to dive deeper into that. But before financial services, we know in LATAM are highly concentrated, uh, high margin, one of the biggest margins you can have, right? Are financial services broken in LATAM? I don't think so. Honestly, I think it's a verse. I mean, I, I can talk about Brazil more specifically. Brazilian industry, banking industry is very strong, very re- resilient over the years, the decades. We have some of the largest banks in the world. They are Brazilian banks, some of the most profitable banks in the world. Brazilian banking industry is very resilient. So definitely it's not broken, in my opinion. Nevertheless, I mean, there's a sizable part of the population that do not have access to decent financial services. It's expensive oftentimes, as you mentioned, right? And for some of those reasons, you started Neon. That's why I think I wouldn't say broken, but definitely players were very comfortable for a while. The lack of competition in the market and the complexity of starting a banking business or credit business allowed them to choose clients that they wanted to serve and the ones they didn't want to serve. A big chunk of Brazilian population, they do have a certain level of interaction with banking industry, but I would classify them as underbanked. They do have four offers of credit products, very limited understanding about credit products and or payment products, whatever product related to banking. And basically, branches were the main distribution channel of banks for decades. And fintech came with a different approach of trying to offer a better experience, better product, including people in the market. We're trying to bring a a huge chunk of the population to have access to better products. And the way we do this is by understanding clearly customer needs and and reality and and capabilities and uh, a level of education and trying to, uh, to shape our product to adapt to them, not the other way around. That's exactly what we have been doing for the last seven years. Fantastic. And what is your core customer segment in that sense? Because I think we really have to unpack who's underbanked and who's completely unbanked, right? Uh, who's outside the financial system. And oftentimes we see those neobanks for focusing on the underserved clients of the segmentation of the, of the pyramid, but not necessarily the ones that have no banking service whatsoever. In Brazil, we don't have too many people without a banking account or a wallet or any kind of service that can hold balance, for example, or a really simple banking account. I think almost all Brazilians, I would say that it's like the huge majority, they have any kind of access. The thing is, 90% of our clients, they belong to class C, D, and E, so lower uh, income class, the reality of uh, the majority of the country. We are focused on bringing their banking relationship from a simple debit card and savings account to a credit card, investment, personal loans, payroll loans, uh, loyalty, giving them better insight about their financials. Adding value, not only being a simple way for them to go to the ATM 
withdraw all their money and use cash. I was asking Arjuna Costa of Flourish, uh, one of your investors, the same question. What defines true financial inclusion in your opinion? Is someone included if you have a bank account, if you have a debit card? What's the standard we should look at? It depends on the country. It depends on the maturity of the market. I would say that in Brazil, financial inclusion is related to access, good financial products. We have some very large institutions that basically they give very, very aggressive trap loans to, to people, to this kind of population, and they make a huge amount of money. In the long term, they are causing a, a very big problem for the country and for the economy. It's, it's impossible to pay the interest rate that they charge. The way we see financial inclusion is we must be able to shape our product to offer something better. So I'll give you an example, right? 70% of people that take a one pay, a payroll loan from Neon, they have no other credit offer in the market at the moment because they 90% of them they take this money to pay more expensive debt they have the check account with overdraft fees very expensive overdraft fees it starts to become big big and big and they can never pay uh, pay that uh, thing back so they get a payroll loan long term 40 months 30 months 20 months whatever with much lower interest rates and we can help them to go back to the market as a clean person, a clean ID number, and have access to better financial products. So that's the way we are helping this uh, population to, to have better financial products. That's the idea. That's only fitting now to talk a bit more about Neon. How did you go about scaling the company? What was the core product at the beginning? And when did you start adding new products and services around it? We started seven years ago as a digital account, simple transactional business. Um, Neon today looks like a, much more as a tech company than as a financial institution. Besides the fact that we have all the financial institution license that we need, so we have balance sheet, credit portfolio, all the like, all the compliance, the regulation, as any other bank in Brazil. But we are much more like tech company. We like to see ourselves this way because it's our DNA and it's the way we started. So we started business as a simple transactional uh, digital account. In fact, we were the first digital account in Brazil, the first one to open fully digitally in four minutes, a account that people could receive their money, uh, wire, do the, their wire transfers, receive their salary, peer-to-peer, deposit, investment, debit, international card. Over time, we also understood that was was not enough. Only the transactional business was not enough. We should offer also credit and investment products in order to become the primary and only financial relationship of our clients. That's a very important thing. If we are the second or third in the share of wallet, we're probably not able to serve the customer as we want and change their life as we want. So we need to fulfill all their needs from a financial perspective in order to be able to add some value to them. So that's that's the idea. As a transactional account, we started to put on top of this credit product and investment product. More recently, we started also to add um, secured credit lines that are cheaper and more sustainable for this segment of population. Perfect. To dive a bit deeper on that, because I'm always asking myself that question, like, at what metrics do you look at when you decide, okay, now we're ready to introduce credit. Now we're ready to introduce 
a loan product, right? Like, how do you determine that this is the right timing to rebundle some of those services? Because as you were saying, you want them to use Neon as a primary institution, not kind of the second or third option. Yeah, this metric changed dozens of times during since we started the business. Because to be honest with you, Patrick, I'm 31 now. I started was very young. We committed so many mistakes. So early days, we were every day we wanted to launch something different, and that was one of the biggest mistakes. We tried to do so many things at the same time that was impossible. This was one of the biggest mistakes, definitely. Trying to do much more than we were able to do with the level of service we wanted to to, to provide. Today we are on the opposite side. Today, my I try to say no to everything. It's hard to convince me of saying yes to something because we have we we trying to prioritize quality over quantity. But trying to answer you early days was all about growth. We we're always asking, understanding from our clients what they needed to for Neon to become their primary uh, relationship. They would list what was necessary and we were going to develop this. Today, we, we think that we have enough to, to fulfill almost all the needs from everyday use from our clients. The KPI changed a little bit. It's not only growth, but also retention rate, activation rate, trying to upsell our existing product, not only launching new products with a low, low level of penetration. Makes all the sense. I mean, along that way, You've also completed four acquisitions, if I'm not mistaken. What were some of the lessons learned of those acquisitions? And how do you determine whether the acquisition was a success? Until now, we, we did five acquisitions. We made out five acquisitions. It was, we learned a lot. The first one, we suffered a lot. I would say that the first one was very important for the next four. We committed so many mistakes with the team, with the integration process. It was very expensive to fix all these issues after the first mistake. We're learning. We're learning. Like we had to build our own business. We acquired another business. Then we had to build the integration. But we learned it very fast. And the other four, I think, was a huge success. The way we measured this. It depends on the, the M&A, depends on the, the perspective of the acquisition. But um, usually the most effective way is we are acquiring business that we want to keep the team motivated, the, the team that is being merged. We want to keep them very motivated and uh, excited to keep speeding up the, the business that we just acquired. So if they stay with us for a long period, the leaders of that company become leaders of Neon in a bigger group, stay motivated, bringing new people, launching new things. That's the best metric for me. We usually don't acquire a, a business for their past, but we consider very early, in the early days of our, what we want to do here. So we are acquiring, we acquire teams that are able to take us to another level. So we acquire for the future. So that's one of the metrics that are very important to me is how many of them keep here motivated after one, two, three, four years. Today, I would say that uh, we were able to fix. It cost us a lot. But at the end, final message about M&A is 
It's all about people, right? Merging two different cultures, merging two different business. You only going to make this happen if both sides want to make this happen and they're happy about it. We've touched up on this already, but as you scale the company and Neon today is a scale up, it's a sizable business. You as a founder and leader also scale with the company. You have to. So I'm curious, how have you changed with the scale-up journey of Neon itself? In so many different ways, I think I, I changed. First of all, I'm losing all my hair <laughs> faster than I expected. I also learned, I tried to be very rely on my partners. I was the only founder of this business. It's a very complex business. Since day one, I knew that it was impossible for me to build this by myself. I had to bring people that would share this dream and feel like they own this business as much as I do. I would say that that's my most important job here, to be able to find people that are in the right moment of their life to become entrepreneur. Majority of them, they're very successful executives in any kind of company, big tech, banks, whatever. And they could work for anyone, anywhere, making a lot of money. But convincing them that they can own this for real and change And if they believe in our mission, in our purpose of uh, offering something better for the Brazilian workers, that they can really drive this company together with me. I think all I have changed was by learning with great people that gratefully decided to join this company and, and help me to build it. I gave you one example, right? I used to say yes to everything. And now I say no to everything. That's something that you learn over time that better to do less, better then a lot of things incomplete. I'm married now, I have kids. You started to balance better priorities and your time. So this also gives you more maturity to face the big challenge that the company will force you to face. Scaling a company certainly changes you. What are some of the next milestones for the company? What are some of the goals you still want to achieve for Neon? I mean, it's clearly still day one and there's still so much to be done. Can you share any of that, what you're still chasing after for the future? Definitely, I still see this as day one. We still in super early days comparing to the big dream we have here. We're only seven years old now. We had opportunity to not be here anymore leading this business, to, to be in a, with a bigger group. But we, we believe a lot in what we're doing here, no matter how hard it is. We are very focused right now in becoming a popular company. We are getting closer every day. The goal is that the first half of next year will break even. We also doing this, not forgetting about growth. So the company is more than doubling this year, for sure, maybe more. And it's not break even at any cost. Uh, break even with a good growth and keeping the plan we had. We consider an IPO another milestone having access to capital market. I mean, it would be great to have the company going public so we can improve our stock option plan for the, all the employees. We can have more access to capital. Even if you take our five years, five-year business plan today, we don't have in the five-year business plan, we don't have even 5% of the market yet. There's a huge opportunity, new products, increasing market share in the existing product that we have. I can't see the end of this. What are some of the opportunities you still see in B2C financial services in Brazil? Because I mean, we've seen PIX, we've seen Neon, Nubank, Creditas, bunch of B2C players that have inevitably changed the way Brazilians consume financial services today. But what is still missing? 
I think the fintech were responsible of proving that was possible to offer good financial product without a huge balance sheet from day one, a huge network of uh, uh, bank branches around the country. But we're still in early days in terms of giving people access to better product. If you look more broadly, you say I would say that all the fintechs in Brazil, they still focus on offering a better, a slightly better product to the same time that used to have a product before. We still have a huge amount of people, I would say that the majority of Brazilian population, that's still not able to have access to a good credit. And that's exactly what, what I think would be the next wave. The early adopters, were they really made a choice, they really have a new banking service. But now you see like deposits from our clients is still concentrated in the big banks. Market share is still 90% with the banks, big banks. There's still a lot to be done. All the fintechs, as we did, we started from the most transactional everyday product to our client. But you have so many different products that weren't disrupted by fintech yet in, in large scale. You still see a lot of new initiatives from fintechs, but in large scale, only a few. I would say we will all the fintechs will grow horizontally to new products, and we also need to grow deeper to have a bigger share of wallet. I think that sums it up perfectly. Why is it so difficult to get there, like to get market share from those big banks? Because one would think, okay, I mean, like the service quality is is not great. They are established brands; they've got their branches everywhere, but they're incumbents. Why is it so difficult? We also need to think that banks, for decades, for Hundreds of years, there are the institutions with most power in the, in the markets, usually, right? So they have, they are able to hire brilliant talent, pay amazing salaries. They were always in the borderline of what you have as, as new technology. They were always investing a lot in innovation. So they are reacting as well. So that's one thing that increased competition. One side of the answer will be this. Second is, we're talking about institutions with a hundred years old, very large institutions. Definitely, all the big banks in Brazil they are a consequence of several MA, dozens of MA. It's very unlikely that you have someone replacing all this product, all this relationship, all this knowledge in ten years. The word fintech in Brazil exists for like six years. When I started the on, nobody used to say fintech. I can see fintech as I mentioned, growing in new products and, and getting a bigger market share over the years. But it takes a while as well. We have to prioritize. Build a balance sheet business is not easy. You cannot grow that fast or you can uh, suffer from a credit delinquency, for example, uh, problem over time. So it takes a while. I mean, seven years, what changed is already impressive. Think about what can happen in the next seven years. So I wouldn't say that it's easy but it's doable, definitely. And we are doing this. But competition is, is, I mean, everyone is here trying to get their share, right? Competition certainly keeps you on, on your toes, incumbents as well as newcomers. Let's look 20, 25 years into the future. What would you like the Brazilian financial services landscape to look like? From a client perspective, because I started this from a client perspective, I would love to see people having the choice of good products and a better understanding about their financial life. We are helping people to deal with their finance, but they have a very low level of education at all. I would like 
the market to be so simple, so uh, flexible that anyone could have access to good products. And finance would be so embedded in our lives, good choices would be made for you that this extremely high interest rate, monthly interest rate, yearly interest rate will be something that you, know, you remember that five years ago this would used to happen. Thinking about the market itself, players, I would say that instead of five big players, you would have 10, 15, hopefully more than this. It's very complex, so I don't know this is a market for 100, but definitely to double or triple the number of big players, and we would be one of them. That's, uh, that's the way we see ourselves. Sounds good to me. Looking forward to that future. Well, there's three questions I'm asking everyone on the podcast in a fast speed round. Would you be ready for those three questions? Let's do it. All right. So first one is, who's an entrepreneur you admire and why? There's no specific name. Everyone that is brave enough to start their own business, to give away the salary every single month, take the risk and do it honestly. I'm a huge fan. Perfect. I can't say anything about that. The second one, in one phrase, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received and would like to pass on to others? It's very cliche, very mainstream, but it's true in my opinion. Try to be not to be the smartest person in the room. Building a business is all about the quality of your team, of your partners. Don't try to be a hero. No one is a hero. Bring good people together with you. You're enhancing the chance a lot if you do it very well. Definitely something you, you've taken it to heart. And last but not least, uh, three keywords that describe a successful business, in your opinion. Team, passion, and resiliency. Three keywords are definitely unnecessary in any, any successful business. Well, that's a wrap. Before we close, is there anything else you would like to share with the audience? Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it a lot. Not at all. It has been a pleasure, Pedro, having you on the show. Thanks for making the time. Thank you for listening to The Enthusiast Podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts to always stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you enjoy the work we are doing, drop us a review or give us a rating. This show is produced by me, Patrick Alex. Also a big shout out to Constanze Ulreich, who is leading our newsletter efforts and much more. Title music by Stock Studio called That Funk Show. <laughs>